Hello and welcome to this University of Brighton podcast. I'm Edwin Gilson, and this week I was joined in the studio by Dr. Sarah Pitt of the School of Pharmacy and Biomolecular Sciences. Dr. Pitt discussed her childhood experiments, working in a hospital in Zimbabwe, her current snail-based research, and the national media attention it has attracted. All that and much more besides. Enjoy the podcast. Dr. Sarah Pitts, thanks for joining me in the studio today. You're actually telling me you've recorded a, another podcast quite recently as well, so in demand. I did. It was for my professional body, the Institute of Biomedical Science, um, it, because it was connected to an article that I've just written about my research for them. I see. OK, and we'll get on to that uh, a little bit later. But um, I wonder if we could start from the start here. I mean, can you remember the point at which you became passionate about biomedical science and biology? I mean, was it at school or college? When was your interest ignited? Um, I always wanted to be a microbiologist, I think. I do remember putting um, bits of uh, jam jars full of sugar water, of various concentrations of sugar, around my parents' house with the lid open just to see what would grow in there because I had a feeling that the amount of sugar that you put in would might affect the, the kind of bugs that would grow in there. And then having okay. a look down a microscope, I had a, one of those um, microscopes that you use a light mirror to, to work when I, when I was very, very small, I was about, I think, 10 or 11. Right. And where did that think when you say you had a feeling that there would be something that would come out of that little experiment? Why did you have that feeling? Because I guess not everybody would. I was just interested in in microorganisms and I didn't obviously didn't have agar and all the normal things that you need to grow microscope mi- microorganisms to hand. Mm. So I just thought, well, I wonder if you put some sugar in water, it would change um, what might grow in there okay. and so I, I don't really know where that came from. And what were the results of that early experiment? I honestly can't really remember. <laughs> okay. I suspect I got a few different things. In yeah the, in and how did your parents hours. feel about that? Um, well I think they, uh, my parents are all kind of in public service my father, well, both actually both my parents were in the police force and we had nurses, we had teachers and things in the family. So I think they weren't quite sure whether this weird child with wanting to do scientific experiments came from. Mm. Um, I think they just couldn't quite really uh, relate to it. Really. Yeah, I guess at that early point, you didn't really have any inkling that you might want to go on and have a career in biomedical science. I guess when you're doing those first experiments, you wouldn't even have even known what that entailed, really. But um, what, at what point did you first start to think that this might be the, the career for you, I suppose? By the time I was a teenager and thinking, what am I going to do for a career? I knew I wanted to... I knew I was interested in infectious diseases by that point, And I knew I wanted to do something useful and help people. But I'm very... Um, I'm quite... I was very shy then and I lacked confidence a lot but also I'm very introverted and so I didn't think I'd that medicine would really be the right career for me because um you know because I'm because you need to be a bit more um outgoing I suppose you might say yeah yeah although people would never think you were weren't outgoing now I don't think no well I hopefully I've got a little bit more confidence (laughs) since I was a 16 but yeah um I really the idea of being in in the background in the laboratory um doing experiments which could then lead to things Mm. later on really appealed to me and so I also um, feel very strongly about um, the the value of the National Health Service and Mm. I was pleased and and so I kind of wanted to create in the health service Mm. 
working on infectious diseases, but not necessarily being a medical yeah. practitioner. And so biomedical sciences that is the answer to that, that okay. question. And what, why infectious diseases then in particular? I don't, don't know, know, but they just fascinate me. Okay. And they still do. And yeah, they yeah. still do. Yeah. Yes. Great. Okay. And you did your uh, BSc at Bristol, right in saying. Yes. Um, and then you worked in hospital diagnostic laboratories in Africa and Central Asia. Uh, how did those opportunities come about and, and what did you learn from those experiences? Well, originally I went to work in London, in hospital in London, and I qualified as a biomedical scientist so that I'm on the sort of register of practitioners so I can practice in the UK. And then I also got um, my first sort of qualification in diagnostic virology, that was. But I, again, from a very early age, I knew I wanted to work in Africa. Okay. Since I was about 10 or 11, I'd been going on about that and again I don't know my my mother wasn't all that keen <laughs> on seeing me going going to the other side of the world but mm. um, I didn't stop talking about it so I really really wanted to do it okay. which was another reason to get a professional qualification so that I actually could be useful to do that so yeah um, at that point I knew I was going to do that so I just applied to a voluntary organization once I had my professional qualifications, so and then I went to Africa, to Zimbabwe actually, to a rural hospital where I trained other the laboratory people and also nurses mm. in basic laboratory techniques. Wow! And what are your um, kind of most salient memories from that time? Then what do you remember? Or what's your kind of overriding impression of it? How do you kind of reflect upon it now? It was tough actually because mm. I was uh, the organisation I'd gone with promised that they were going to send me some someone else has sort of come with me but that person was supposed to be a midwife I think never materialized yeah. they never got anybody volunteering or, or they didn't find anyone suitable so I was kind of on my own in rural Africa and I was I'm a Londoner and mm. I've always lived in big cities um, apart from at the moment where I live in Lewis now but um, and all the other parts of times in my life I'd actually lived in big major cities like mm. London Bristol and after I came back from Africa, I lived in Liverpool and Manchester. But so here I was. Not only was it the shock of being in a rural setting, mm. I was. It was a hundred kilometres from the nearest town. Wow! And I didn't have transport. Sort of relying on other people giving me a lift or the local bus. Mm. Um, and there was also the culture shock of being in a different country and a different culture and people were speaking a different language around yeah. you and so on so it was tough but one of the things I'm most proud of is that I I learnt the language it's a very complicated Shona the grammar is really complicated so I learnt it phonetically right okay and to, after I'd been there for about 18 months I was in the lab one day and one of the senior staff nurses came in and was talking to me and um, the other people in the in the laboratory who were um, local Zimbabwean people and we were talked about that in English we were talking about various things and then as the person left the left the room so his back was to, towards me I realized I had one more question to ask him mm. and I called out his name and he turned around and he looked at my colleague and said oh yes what was your question I said no no it was me and he said no it couldn't be you he said no foreigner could ever wow. speak with that that accent yeah that's and great. so I was very proud of that. But yeah. the, unfortunately, it wasn't the best, the most well-respected accent. Right. So I went to the capital city, to Harare, to try and organise some something for somebody else from, from the station where I worked. And I used my best 
uh, Shona, mm. and all the people behind the counter were just falling about because there was this, <laughs> this white girl speaking a really local regional yeah. dialect. Yeah, yeah. They just couldn't believe what they were hearing. Wow. It must have been quite, a, for want of a better word, a kind of character building time then because imagine you were quite you're quite young at that time and yes. learning lots of new skills including the language like you said um do you think it did help to kind of shape you in that way yes i think so i think you know you kind of you it's helped i think i challenged myself to do that mm. and i and i have then subsequently you go on and you challenge yourself to do other things and you think well each time you've achieved something challenging like that mm. you think well i could i did that thing you know, I, I lived, I survived, I went to Africa for yeah. two years. Yeah, yeah. So, and I did achieve some things when I was there. So how hard can it be? Yeah. Then then you do another, your next challenging, you think, well, I managed to do that. Mm. So that every time you think you're reluctant to try something, you think, well, I probably could do it. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's a good way of looking at it. And then, well, talking about moving on from there then, uh, you eventually went on to Liverpool and a PhD at John Moore's yes. University. Yes. Uh, why Liverpool, firstly? Was that moved because of a certain supervisor? Were there any other significant factors? Uh, well, there was a significant factor. It was because when I came back from Africa, I wanted to do a master's in uh, parasitology and tropical medicine. Mm. And there were two places where I could do it. The London School of Tropical, Med tropical Medicine, Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, sorry. Mm. The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, or the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. Right. And as I say, I, I am a Londoner, and it would have been involved for financial reasons staying at home with my parents mm. into my 30s and I thought yeah I could or I could go to Liverpool so yeah. I went to Liverpool to study okay. my master's and I ended up staying up there and doing my PhD so it wasn't I imagine it wasn't because of a particular supervisor then was it if you stayed in the same city after your MA or uh it was to some extent because I had already met the person who okay. was going to be my super because I'd started teaching biomedical science yes uh, on I the see. biomedical science BSc as a, as a visiting lecturer okay so I had met him and I had an idea for a PhD and we talked about it so uh, so yes in a roundabout way but I didn't go to Liverpool to, for that supervisor no. but I stayed in Liverpool because of that supervisor yes okay and what did you make of Liverpool as a city then um it, it's very interesting because it was um, uh, 20 years ago now. So it was being um, reef refurbished and there was a lot of regeneration going around in the city. Mm. Um, and so that it, it sort of had a very sort of positive uh, feeling at, at, at the time. But mm. the coming from London, the fact that it was quite, it feels quite compact. Yeah. Everything, the shops are near the concert hall and near the main train station. Mm. And so actually it's easier to get in and go to do something in the evening and then get home again. Yes. I really liked that. And of course the people are famously very friendly. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than a kind of 45 minute tube. <laughs> yes. Tube ride. Yeah. Yes. Um, you said to me before that a PhD is hard work. Yes. And you sometimes wonder why you're doing it, but that it's worth it in the end. I think that's yes. almost a direct <laughs> quote. Uh, so what are your lingering memories from that PhD time then, reflecting on what, what you said there? The um, the project that I did, it was an idea that I'd had that I wasn't really sure whether it would turn into a PhD. And mm. I'd gone to te speak to um, the person who was my supervisor, a chap called Dr Richard Sands, um, and we talked about it and then we came up with an idea for doing, uh, you know, a way of doing it. Um, but... I had given up, uh, I'd gone back to working in diagnostic virology in the NHS right. and I was quite senior. So I had given up a particular career path, right. a, a kind of certain career path. If I'd done that, I'd probably be uh, 
if I hadn't done my PhD, I would probably be a laboratory manager in a big laboratory somewhere in, right. in, in probably in London, I should imagine, by now. Okay. So I'd given up that opportunity for the PhD. And so I wasn't really sure whether I'd done the right thing for quite some time. Mm. And also I found it um, very frustrating. And although I've said I'm introverted, it was quite lonely as well because mm. you're kind of working on your own, on your, on your thing. Whereas I was used to working in a... Uh, in a diagnostic laboratory, you're part of a team, even if it's, even if it's quite a small team. So I um, I said to myself, every, at the end of every month, I said, oh, I'm not doing this anymore. Really? And I said, right, every, month? Give, wow. every month? Every right. month. I said, all right, I'll give it one more month. Yeah. And I did that every month for 18 months. And then I realised I was halfway through. Yeah. So I might as well keep, keep going with it. <laughs> so you I presume you don't regret that decision then to start the PhD rather than carry on in the, in the NHS? No, I don't. No. Not now. No, okay. it's, it's worked out well for me for a number of reasons. Um, one of them is I met my husband while I was Yes, I was going to ask that. Because he, he still works at he John Wars, doesn't he? He still works there, yes. Ah, okay. Yeah. So you met him when, when you were doing... Was he doing a PhD at the same time as no, you were? No, no. He, he was... Uh, it was to do with the... T- the I remember I said I was... It was to do with the teaching of the of the microbiology okay. in the biomedical science program. Right. He's a parasitologist. Ah, right. And so we met because we were designing practicals in parasitology together. I see. And that's okay. how we met. Ah, great. And how did the move to Brighton come about then? Was there any universities in between Liverpool and Brighton or straight here? No. Um, so I finished my PhD and then I was getting sort of sessional lecturing and short short contracts at, at John Moores and actually I did a locum in back in the diagnostic lab at the Royal Liverpool Hospital for a couple of months as well so mm. you know I wasn't actually able to get a permanent job and the uh, at Brighton University set up a course called the Applied Biomedical Science Programme which was in a way of integrating the BSc in biomedical science, the theoretical side of it, with hospital-based practice. Perfect. And of course, it was perfect yeah, for yeah. me because I yeah. had both. I had the academic side of it. Yeah. I had the PhD and a teaching qualification. Mm. And I also had the laboratory experience. And that, that was the sort of job I had been looking for. Yeah. Um, as it turned out, Liverpool, uh, John Moore's set up the course a year later, a year after I'd started at Brighton. Right. But I'd already started at Brighton, and so I wanted to kind of see the thing which I'd started through. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then in the end, I ended up staying staying here. Wow. But that was the reason why I came for a very specific course. And do you remember your interview then? Because like you said, it does seem almost like the ideal role for you. But did that make you extra nervous or obviously excited to, to, for the opportunity as well but it was yeah. nerve-wracking because actually the post was a joint post between the university and the nhs okay and for uh, the first few years i was actually based at the royal sussex county right. i had an office here at the university of brighton and at the royal sussex oh, yeah. and so i've only been full-time at the university since 2011 so it's half split between it practical and originally. more yes. well i suppose it's practical in the lab as well but yes yeah. it was right so it was really nerve-wracking because the panel was who the person who was the the manager at the Royal Sussex County, the course leader for biomedical science here, somebody from my professional body, the Institute of Biomedical Science, somebody from the health authority who was going to be funding the post, and then also I think somebody from HR. 
and it was mm. a it was just this panel of people asking you all these different wow. sorts of questions so yes it was very <laughs> nerve-wracking and i had yeah. gone for and what you, it was one of these things where you did a presentation in the morning and then you did your interview in the afternoon and there were five or six people so there's quite a long wait between the two things right and i'd come down from london and with my mother and she took me for lunch. I think if my mother hadn't been with me, I would have gone home <laughs> yeah. after the morning session because I was very, very worried wow. about it. That sounds really daunting, particularly as those figures are actually like so high up in their own fields. Yes. <laughs> obviously, you want to make it a good was. impression, but obviously yes. you did. So <laughs> that's good. Quite a simple question. What do you find most rewarding about your job here at Brighton then? Is there any, I know it's a varied role, but is there any one particular thing that stands out? The thing that, that I really, really like about it is that when you see a student who's graduated and have has gone on to do what they really wanted to do with mm. their life um, obviously mostly it's going to be in science and quite often quite often it's in biomedical science and they go in, into diagnostic laboratories or into research but the fact that um you've actually been part of that journey mm. um is really 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 rewarding yeah does it feel i haven't asked more academics for some reason but does it feel strange to be on the other side of that so if you remember back to when you were a student, whether that's an undergraduate or PhD student, and you kind of saw these respectable figures <laughs> and you kind of admired them a lot, I suppose. Does it feel strange for you now to be on the other side of that? Yeah. Very, very strange. I think I've got the job. I always I've got I look I always looked at people and thought, that's the job I want. How do I get that job? Mm. I am now in that position where I I've got the job I was always wanting to have. Yeah. But there's nobody there's no one senior to me that I can look up, look up to. And one of my roles is the uh, the chief examiner for virology for the Institute of Biomedical Science for the whole for the whole country. Right. Which is a job I'd always wanted, but never expected that I would never imagined I would be senior enough. Yeah. And clever enough to actually get there. Yeah. yeah. And also the other problem is that now you're at that point who's above you that or who more senior to you with more experience that you can ask mm. there isn't anyone because <laughs> you're scary. it yeah, yeah people are asking you for advice yeah, now, yeah. which That's that nice. is very very strange very I mean, strange well so you say that you said that you were obviously a shy child but you're clearly a very ambitious one as well yes um would you describe yourself as that or is this oh, kind very of, very driven you yes, are driven, to, yeah. classic first child yes <laughs> so what do you think i mean moving on from what you find rewarding here then, and that might link in a little bit to the next question. How would you describe your teaching style? I like to get students to think, which they don't always see where I'm going with some things. Okay. I like to challenge them and I like them to... Um, um, but what I really want to show them is how fascinating microbiology is. Mm. So that even if they can't be as enthusiastic about it as I am, which I appreciate that not everybody <laughs> loves microbiology as much as I do. Yeah. They can at least, um, for the moment where they're actually studying it in that module or even in that lecture, they can say, well, this person finds it really interesting. There might be something in it for me mm. and at least kind of take an interest in it. And I try and do that by relating um, what we're talking about in theory in the lecture to everyday life which of course for a microbiologist that's really easy because there's always new viruses mm. in the news or being discovered or there's always an outbreak of food poisoning somewhere or there's you know there's things like influenza there's going to you know that we're getting into flu season or norovirus you can mm. always relate to you can always say well even if you're not really interested in the science you might be interested in it for your own health and safety sort of yeah. point of view so i try and make it 
um, interesting and relevant to them. Do you consciously bring certain news stories into the teaching then? Are you, I do, are you allowed to yeah. do that? Yeah, so I do. always update my all my, especially the introductory lectures to a particular topic. There's always, you know, viruses in the news. And I always update that every year to make sure that it's, it really is this, week, this week's news yeah. that's there. We will uh, get into the details of your current research in a minute. Uh, but first, I wanted to ask you about the press coverage you've had about it. Because you've had quite a bit, haven't you? And I was with uh, with you when the BBC Sussex reporter came in and was kind of hovering his microphone above you in the in the snails, which is quite strange. And obviously, yes. BBC Television as well. Yes. Uh, has it been strange to have them coming into your lab to film and record? Yes, very strange. And that's where the introverted, shy child <laughs> came out again and said, "Oh, why are we doing this?" Yeah. Um, when the BBC Sussex television cameras came in I actually made my two master's students who are also um, technicians in the department Joe Hawthorne and um, Bertie Bertarelli I made them come into the lab with me so that um, they got to be on the telly as well it wasn't just me that was being embarrassed on the telly okay Um, and would you say that that's I guess it's easy to assume that that's something a lot of academics would want to achieve or they'd want to have that profile of of being on the evening news for example Um, is that something that you've always wanted or is it just a nice byproduct of the research now no <laughs> shaking your no, head no I, I it's not something i really wanted and okay. also it's it's not it's it's nice that people are taking an interest in your um work but the only reason that you kind of do it is because to raise the profile of your study to hopefully get mm. some more funding for to carry on with your research really. yes that's true so it's a bit of a cyclical thing the more yeah. profile you get and i suppose that's a good attitude isn't it to keep focusing on the work rather than get distracted by yeah celebrity yes (laughs) (laughs) on the research itself you are quote from your research page evaluating potential antimicrobial agents in mucus collected from mollusks so people listening will will be able to get the gist of that um, i would imagine but could you just summarize what that means precisely so um one of the things that we as academics we will have to do we have to offer projects for our undergraduate students and back in probably 2013, I think it was, my husband, who I mentioned, he's an he's an invertebrate biologist. He said, oh, do you know what? I think there might be something in um, snail mucus that might be killing, you know, help protecting them against infection. Mm. I think it would be a good idea to investigate that. And I shied away from it because I thought, well, I don't know how to look after snails. How do you keep them? How do you feed them? I, I don't really want to do that. So he did it. Um, and then at the end of that year, he sort of said he thought there might be something in it. But when I talked to him about how he was doing the microbiology and bearing in mind, he's working at John Moore's University in Liverpool. So this was on one of our phone calls. Mm. He explained to me over the phone what he was doing. And I thought, well, that, that you're clearly not doing this correctly. Um, I'm the microbiologist in this family. <laughs> I'll take this on and see if I can make it work. So why did you not think that he, what he was doing was correct then? I can't remember how he, what, the way he explained what he was doing the microbiology. He, okay. It was just not, it just wasn't a method that was going to work. I, I say it was a few years ago now. I can't actually remember yeah. what he was doing, okay. but I know it wasn't, it was clearly not going to work microbiologically. Hmm. Um, and so rather than, it, I suppose I could have gone up there and showed him, but it was easier for me to just try and do it myself with some undergraduate students, which I did. And okay. 
I thought the results are a little bit variable, but we thought there might be something in it. So I spent the mm. summer of 2014 trying to perfect the method and trying to get consistent results, get, get an assay that would actually work and then get consistent results, which which I did. Mm. Really rather surprised. I was really rather surprised by the fact that it worked. Mm. Um, and then it sort of carried on from there, really. So what did it take to get those results then? Just a lot of data collecting and a lot of experimentation over that summer? Yes. Yeah. So And a lot of time in the lab mm. because the methods that we're using even now are very uh, labour-intensive, very manual. Yeah. They're very, you know, in a sense, they're kind of very standard, but quite old-fashioned sort of methods. Yeah, it's quite finicky, isn't it? Just watching yes, you, you experiment on the on yes. the snail. It's kind of, you've got the, what do you call the pipette? Yes, it's like a plastic pipette. Yeah, yeah. To, to retrieve the, retrieve the mucus, the mucus yeah. from it, yes. And so you said, um, I think I'm right in saying that the proteins from the mucus could lead to an antibiotic cream to treat specifically burn wounds and an aerosol for, for lung infections yes. suffered regularly by patients with cystic fibrosis. Yes. How did you identify that the protein from the mucus could treat those exact medical issues? Well, we of course, we haven't yet. We've got these proteins, which we think are the ones we're interested in. Mm. The reason we thought it might be useful as a cream is because there are cosmetic treatments which contain snail mucus extract. Wow. We don't... I know they don't seem to be able to... I haven't been able to find out exactly what is it what is in it if there's mm. any specific ingredients i don't think they are i think they've just taken the mucus from the snail as you've seen me collecting yeah. in the lab and then just sort of purified it cleaned it up a little bit right. and then put it in a put it in a in a cream in a pot which is supposed to be face cream it's supposed to be anti-wrinkles and possibly to reduce the appearance of blemishes and scars right and that is that is um sold we were um in uh italy a couple of weeks ago for our celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary wow. actually um, and on the television there was an advert for this cream and there was pictures of these beautiful women with snails all crawling up their wow. bodies and over their faces really? and up their arms advertising this cream so it's a the point is i'm not sure whether it necessarily works against your wrinkles and scars but the point is it's obviously been able possible to make it into a cream that is safe um, licensed for use mm. on humans and things like that. So that some of the work that we might have to do to make our protein um, as part of a, a treatment um, as a cream has already been done right, okay. by the people. So I, it seems to me that that would be a, an easier thing to do than try and make a, a drug as a as a pill that you would swallow yes, because yeah. of the actual technical side of trying to get it to work that yeah. way. Do you think people would be shocked to know that certain cosmetics have mucus in them or is it a widely known well i mean <laughs> I no it's idea. called snail gel you can oh, right. buy you okay. can buy there's one you can buy in holland and barrett oh right doctor, I didn't know that. doctor organic snail oh, okay. gel and snail cream and face masks and things like that it's right. quite common it's just that i've not seen it advertised on the tv before no it sounds like a mildly disturbing <laughs> advert that you saw actually <laughs> yes <laughs> and so the next uh stage like you mentioned it's it's still being tested um is there a kind of milestone that you're you're aiming for now? Or yes, what I really want to do is get those proteins on their own, so I can actually um, have them at a known concentration outside of the all the rest of the gloopy bits of the mucus. Okay. So I can actually do more um, targeted experiments, trying to work out what concentration you might need in order to have an effective antibiotic. Because at right. the moment we've just got whole mucus or bits of mucus. Mm. And we know it kills the bacteria, but it's not quantitative. And okay. so I'd really like to be able to get a number on 
on its concentration, on, on its potency, if you like. Okay. And also we can then start to investigate how is it interacting with the bacteria and, and what effect it might have on, on the bacterial cell wall or metabolism. Then we could then perhaps start predict about whether it would be suitable in a cream or potentially in an aerosol, get the sort of data that a pharmaceutical company might be interested in yeah. taking it further from us. Okay. Has this kind of taken over your working life a bit? And obviously you're, you're balancing it with teaching and everything else. But I guess it's not that doesn't it's not really a bad thing when you're very passionate about this certain topic, I suppose. But it must be slightly all consuming. Uh, a little bit. I was in the lab from 8am till 8pm on Tuesday. Right. And then when I came in on Wednesday and looked at the results, they hadn't they weren't quite what I was hoping for. So not only was I tired, I was also a bit sort of disheartened by the results. But yeah. nevertheless, we've, we've salvaged it and we've got a new, some more experiments we're going to do next week. Okay. But it is quite tricky, um, especially at this time of year. Mm. There's a lot of teaching, there's assessments for the students and I have my undergraduate project students I have to supervise. Yeah. Um, and then I've only got one working on this project. They're all working on different sorts of projects. Mm. Um, and also I wrote a textbook on parasitology with my husband ah. a few years ago and he we discussed it and I said I probably wouldn't be able to help just at the moment but he's signed a contract to go for the second edition oh, right. so he started working on the second edition of the book I see. and so I really ought to be under a certain amount of um, uh, obligation to do something on that yeah um whereas i'd really much rather be in the lab and that is actually taking all my spare time and wasting moments at the moment yeah. okay and so you think that you may end up helping with that book in some format but not <laughs> well i've actually yet. promised to write you know revise one of the chapters uh by christmas so oh, wow. we'll see nothing like <laughs> a deadline <laughs> yeah we'll see whether that happens i don't know and is that book used in any of your teaching then or any yes, of his teaching it okay. is in both our teaching must be a bit strange and because it was we published it in 2012, so it, it, it is in need of an update. Okay. But luckily, it's not starting the whole book from scratch. It's right. just revising. It's just a second edition of an existing book. So it's, okay. I, I'm, I'm telling myself, probably, I'm probably kidding myself, but I am telling myself that that's a little bit easier than writing a whole yeah. new book from scratch. I think that's right, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to move on to some lifestyle questions? Go on these then. are our customary quickfire questions. I don't know if you've thought about these at all. It's probably better if you haven't, to be honest. <laughs> overthinking it might be bad uh what advice would you give to your 16 year old self have more confidence in yourself okay. and your abilities because i was really very shy and really really lacked confidence when i was 16 and i think i yeah. might have done better at school and done better at university if i'd had just a bit more self-belief it doesn't seem but to have held you back much it's yeah, taken eventually. me a lot longer to get yeah, yeah okay. than, than some of my contemporaries, I can see that. Right. But I'm not sure that's necessarily a bad thing because the experiences you have and the, the, the setbacks that you have along the way actually make you, probably make you better um, at your job and mm. possibly a better person, I don't I don't know, but certainly mm. better at your job um, yeah. because it's it's easier to understand that, that not everybody's really very good at absolutely everything, so mm. you have to kind of understand that, if people don't understand what you're trying to teach them, then try and explain it in a different way. Yes. Maybe. And don't blame and them for don't, not understanding. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. that, so that's probably helped, but I think, okay. yes, I, that's, and also you don't know what's around the corner. That's the other thing. Okay. Great. <laughs> and what is your favorite place in Sussex? I love going up to uh, the top of the downs. Okay. Nice. Um, there's a, there's some lovely walks. 
um, just starting it's near my mm. house yeah, in yeah. Lewis. You just walk up to the top of the hills, walk up to Mount Harry, across the across the Ditchling, or you can go mm. across the hills and back down to Rottingdean and then just mm. have a paddle in the sea. Lovely. Love that. And that, well, that might actually answer the next question, your perfect weekend. Would it entail some of that? Yes, it would yeah. be uh, going to a football match and watching okay. my my team, Brentford FC. I remember oh, really? Joe came from West London oh. and they would win and then we'd have a, a walk on the South Downs with my husband and then a a nice meal in the evening. Lovely. How are Brentford doing? They're actually doing very well at the moment. Okay. Su- worryingly well. <laughs> what, is it League One or...? No, they're in the Championship. Championship. Oh, I didn't mean to downplay them. Sorry. <laughs> right. And we're just... They've built a new stadium. Well, they're building a new stadium. It should be ready um, by next season. And so okay. I'm thinking about where am I going to have my season ticket in the new stadium. Ah. So you have a season ticket now as well? Yes. Oh, wow. So every two... Pretty much every two weeks you're there? Yes. Cool. Um, and what are you currently reading, watching or listening to? You can have one of those, all of those. If um, I'm currently reading a book called The Prime Minister's Reflections from Wilson to uh, May by Steve Richards. And it's really, really interesting. It's really well written. Mm. Um, politics in this country obviously is a bit crazy. Mm. Um, and this is, um, he's a, a journalist who's followed, uh, obviously, prime ministers and elections for a a long time yeah and it's his sort of standing back and just reflecting on the things that aren't necessarily obvious to to us from the from the news yeah and from the headlines and from the hype about all the different prime ministers you know you sort of have an impression of this particular prime minister this was his characteristics right and he's sort of taking a step back from that and showing you that while it's not untrue there's more to it yeah, in all yeah. in cases of all of them yeah. and so it's very very well written and i can recommend it if anyone's interested yeah particularly at this time of yes. course yeah i i listen mostly classical music so um okay. nice. um sort of just a different mixture of different music at the moment lastly this is the one that people struggle with the most actually what three people would you invite to your fantasy dinner party they could be living dead fictional even up to you okay. I have thought about this one. Okay. Baroness Shirley Williams. Right. Johann Sebastian Bach and Louis Pasteur. Wow. And I would have to hope that my language skills would be up to keeping keeping the conversation flowing. (laughs) Through the translator. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks to Dr Pitt for her time and see you next week for another University of Brighton podcast. You can listen to all of our podcasts by searching for University of Brighton in your favourite listening app. See you next time.